Before we turn to Psalm 15, I invite you to open a Bible to Luke chapter 24, where we will read in Luke's gospel his telling of the good news of that first Easter morning. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. If you're visiting uh, with us today and you're unfamiliar with the Easter story and what it is that we celebrate, this is one of the four tellings of what happened that morning 2,000 years ago. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women who were with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed even to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. And so we say, Christ is risen. I invite you to turn your Bible now to Psalm chapter 15. As a church family, we are going through the book of Psalms, one psalm a week, and this is the 15th now, Sunday of the year, and so we are here in Psalm 15. And we see in this very psalm, not only had Jesus been preparing his disciples for what was going to happen to him, but all along the way, God had been preparing his people for what he was going to do through the Messiah. And so even though Psalm 15 is not a traditional uh, reading for an Easter Sunday, I I hope and trust that you'll see in it a way in which God was already preparing his people for what the promised Messiah would be like and what he would do and how ultimately he would be vindicated. This is Psalm 15. It says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt, and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. 
that'll conclude our psalm. Many of the psalms have begun with a rhetorical question at the beginning, oftentimes asking questions of God of why the psalmist was going through a particular suffering or how long a certain trial might last. And here we're now in a, the beginning of a new section and grouping of psalms where it's a different question that is raised. And it's a good one, just like all the other ones that had preceded it. But this question is saying, who could possibly dwell on God's holy hill? Who's allowed to get close to God? Who's allowed when they know where and when he is to have direct contact with him? Who can appear in his presence? And this question is something that though we might not always say it in the way the psalmist articulates it here, this is a very human question. Because what the Bible tells us is that all of us were created for communion with God. All of us were created for communion with God. He made us in his image so that we could have... And so in the very, very beginning pages of the Bible, as God creates Adam and Eve, this is not a complicated or rhetorical question. Who can dwell in God's presence? In the garden, in paradise, his creation dwelt in his presence. He came among them, it says, in the cool of the day, and there was no barrier in their relationship with one another. The God who made everything made male and female in his image to be able to enjoy his presence. And even though we are no longer in paradise and we don't experience the abundance and the fullness of what our first parents did, we're still created in his image. And there is in each and every one of us a longing for communion with our God. But we know now that there's something between us, that there's a barrier, that actually any type of encounter, as we read throughout the pages of Scripture, almost every time uh, somebody from heaven or an angel appears, the most natural response uh, of the people in Scripture is they become terrified and afraid. We even see that on the morning of the resurrection. They see the tomb empty, and initially there's fear, the disciples hear the report of it and their initial response is suspicion or uncertainty and fear. And, and all of us uh, in our humanity, knowing that there is some type of a barrier, rightly have a sense of intimidation at things that are holy and powerful and great. An, an example that I think of as a family, our kids love to go to the zoo and they love the amazing creatures that are at the zoo and they stand in awe at the power of a lion and a tiger and the size of a rhino or an elephant and they enjoy all of that, but they also don't want to get too close to it. They don't want the gates to be open or the windows to be broken when we walk around because as they adore and admire the wonder of these creatures, they also know that these creatures are greater than them and bigger than them and stronger than them and faster than them. And so they want the barrier up, 
and actually in the pages of scripture was God reveals himself to his people uh, most dramatically in the story of uh, Moses leading the children out of their slavery in Egypt when God is doing a, an abundance of miracles to show his desire for their freedom the people themselves say to Moses can you go up the hill for us because <laughs> we don't want to go we're really scared we're really nervous about what would happen to us if we tried to ascend the hill and so we know that there's this barrier that we have in our flesh and our humanity that we're no longer in the garden where it's just natural to be in the presence of God but that even if God desires now to have communion with us that we have a sense of intimidation and shame about what it would mean to be in his presence but the hunger the ache has not gone away from any one of us we were created in his image, and we long for communion with him. The second thing we see in this uh, psalm is that, yes, we were created for that communion, and we were also redeemed for righteous living. So we were created to experience fellowship with him, but even in his redemption for us, which, again, in the Old Testament, we think back on the story of the people being rescued from their slavery in Egypt. God saved them and freed them he told Pharaoh, so that his people could go and worship him. And by worship him, he didn't simply mean that they could go out and have a service where they'd sing songs and offer a few prayers and then go right back to Egypt and keep living the way they were living. No, the freedom to worship him was that they would actually be set free from their slavery and so that they could now be free to live for him. And from the beginning, again, God has designed that our worship of him and our following him would not just be something we do with our words, but not our bodies, or with our thoughts, but not with our actions, but that our worship of him would affect every area of our lives. And so that our desire for obedience uh, to him would be reflected in every area of our life. And so actually, this is two ways of saying the same thing. We could say we were created for righteous living because that's how we experience communion with a righteous God. And so here in Psalm 15 is given 10 different examples of what righteous living would look like. It doesn't follow exactly the 10 commandments, but it has that number 10 in that same spirit of what would it look like in your life and mine to love God with our heart, soul, and mind. To worship him not just in our words and songs, but actually to worship him Monday through Saturday as well in our ordinary and everyday experiences. What would it look like if worship affected anything and everything that we did? And here, the psalmist knows that we're not in paradise anymore. There's no allusion to the fact that everything is okay. There's a recognition on the part of the psalmist that there are vile people in our presence. There will become needs among us where people require the generosity of others to help them get through the day. So the psalmist knows we're not in Eden anymore, but there's still a purposefulness in God that he rescued his people so that they could live a new way before them. And so when God rescued the children of Israel, he didn't want them to now create a new nation that would continue to carry on all the same injustice and slavery and atrocities that existed in Egypt. He set them free so that they would live a different way so that they would treat people differently. 
so that they would have integrity, that they would, recognizing everybody else made in God's image, would now treat them with the dignity of people made in his image. Infinitely valuable, precious, sacred in his sight. And so that's where even if you don't believe the Bible, if you were willing just to take the Ten Commandments and say, what would your neighborhood be like if everybody around you lived this way? It would be so much better than it is. <laughs> what would your family life be like if everybody honored the principles laid out in the Ten Commandments? Your, your family life would be so much healthier and richer. What would our nation be like if we honored these principles of loving God and loving one another in the ways he taught us? You don't even have to believe it's true to accept that you, it would be better for each and every one of us if nobody ever lied, nobody ever cheated on one another, nobody ever stole from one another, nobody was filled with anger to do violence towards one another, that we valued God and we valued everyone made in his image. And so there again, even because we know we're not perfect, we still in our hearts and our conscience believe that this is the best and the right way to live that we were created for communion with him, that he redeemed his children in order to live a righteous life so that in every area of their lives they could know the presence of their Savior who is holy. And you and I were made that way. But again, we hear that, and almost all of us, if we're honest, then have a sense of shame or guilt knowing we don't live that way all the time knowing that even if we say we're Christians, we don't always act like Christians all the time in the ways that we should. And we know the accountability of that that confronts us at times. And, and more and more, we know the set of expectations that come with that. I joyfully serve as a pastor, but I very rarely start by telling people I am a pastor because I have no idea what they will start to think of me once I tell them that or what set of expectations they then might put on me, and then I say, I really better behave, because if they know I'm a pastor, then they're gonna judge everything I do or believe by how they see me, and so there's even a little bit of hesitancy, and so I try to think of the different things I can say uh, before finally eventually saying, yes, I am a pastor, and so I can say I work for a nonprofit organization. You do, oh, I work at a church. Oh, you do, what do you do at the church? And then I'm like, okay, I finally have to just come clean and tell them what I do. At the church this past week, though, uh, in our neighborhood, there was a young couple uh, walking by that we'd never met before, and so I said hi to them, and we were talking, and as we were talking, we realized we knew uh, a lot of similar people because they were wearing, they were both wearing Copley shirts, and so I said, oh, I went to Copley, and they're like, we went to Copley, and so we started talking, sort of doing the notes of comparison, and then at about two minutes through, uh, the wife then paused and goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, are you the priest? And I said, yes, I am. And they said, wait a minute. I mean, they, they're more likely to call me a pastor. And they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, no, 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 I don't care. I just don't want you to be confused because my wife and three kids are standing right over there. And if I say yes and then they come and you're confused, I just want to clarify that. So you can call me whatever you want, but uh, yes. And so then sure enough, they had known people uh, who were a part of the church. And so then that led to more conversations of people that we knew in common. But there again, all of us have a sense of expectation of what is the right way to live and what do we long for for anybody who says they speak for God or they represent God or his purposes. And it is, we, we do expect, we, we want to see holiness lived out in the lives of people.
And here, the psalm also points forward, not just to what we know in our hearts we should do as people who've been redeemed by God, but then ultimately what we believe was incarnated by our Lord Jesus Christ. If this is the righteous way to live, and this is the type of life that leads to communion with God, then wouldn't it be true if Jesus came in the flesh and he showed us the ways of God and he had intimacy and communion with the Father that he would live in all these ways? And you can take Psalm 15 and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and say, did Jesus live these ways? Was he blameless in the way that he walked? When given the opportunity to take shortcuts and cheat or to do what is right, did he do what was right? Did he speak truth in his heart? Did he slander anyone with his tongue? Did he do any evil to his neighbors? Did he betray or take reproach against any of his friends? Was he okay with people who were set on being vile? When there was a group of men who were ready with stones to kill a woman in front of them and he saw their hearts and the vileness and the wickedness of it, was he like, you know, I'm just not going to intervene here because I don't want to get in trouble? Or did he despise the wickedness that was in their hearts? And did he challenge them in that wickedness to do other Did he honor those who feared the Lord, the woman who um, broke a jar of ointment and anointed him, the widow who gave an offering that was, uh, by all earthly measurements, incredibly small, but that Jesus would point out to his disciples was greater in heaven than any other large offering that the others had been giving that day. Did he swear to his own hurt and not change. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and the vow he made to his heavenly father to do whatever he asked him to do would cause his own hurt, did he do it anyway? He did. He swore to his own hurt and he did not change. When people around him were in desperate need and he could have taken advantage of them, was he generous to them without demanding anything in return? Yes, he was. This is how he lived because he knew the Father and he knew that righteous living was the way to have communion with God. What surprises us, then, is that as Psalm 15 unfolds, that kind of living, though, we would expect would be then received by those around him, that he would be rewarded for living this kind of way. But rather, the gospel story tells us that even though he did all of these things, he was, in fact, cursed for our rebellion. So we know we need to live this way in order to ascend the holy hill of God's presence. But in the life of Jesus, he had to consider, is he willing to live this way if the hill that he's going to ascend is Calvary? 
And his resounding answer was yes. He was still willing to live with this integrity and blamelessness before his heavenly father, even though it would mean that he would pay the price on Calvary because he was willing to be cursed for you and for me, for our rebellion against God, for the fact that we are not experiencing what we were created to and that we are not living in the righteousness that we were redeemed to live into. And so because of that, he was willing to experience the curse and the injustice and the shame that should have been upon us so that each and every one of us could be free. Though it didn't happen as the immediate consequence, Psalm 15 does give us at the very end this indication that surely the cross could not be the end of his story because God who is just will always do what is just. God who is right will always do what is right. And so if someone lived the way Jesus did, the end of his story cannot be shame, cannot be cursing, cannot be outcast but in fact a vindication that he who does these things shall never be moved. And that's what Mary and the other women experienced that Sunday morning and then as the disciples heard that story, as they grieved the fact that their Savior had died, they then rejoiced that he had then been vindicated. Vindicated for his glory and for our hope that God in the end will do what is right and good and that that gives us a sense of joy and expectation that we can now experience communion with the Father that we now have motivations to continue to seek to live righteously in this world so I invite you to take a Bible and to go to 1 Corinthians 15 in conclusion where we'll hear about another person who came to encounter the resurrected Christ and in coming to believe in that resurrection now desires to live with the integrity and the passion and the motivation that Psalm 15 describes. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is summarizing the good news. We'll we'll start in verse 1. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So whether then it is I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. 
So there's the Apostle Paul acknowledging his unworthiness to receive the good news, but in having received it, now his desire, his motivation to live and to work, not to earn God's favor, that's already been given, but because God's love is so great and so beautiful and so powerful, and because the Apostle Paul longs for the communion that that salvation is meant to restore to us. He wants to live with integrity, not perfectly. He doesn't become Jesus. We ourselves will never be able to live exactly as Jesus did. But we can enjoy the sweet fellowship that he died to give us. And so may we be motivated to live in such a way as to experience the goodness of the holiness of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you that your son who lived perfectly on our behalf was truly not eternally shaken. We thank you that he rose victorious from the dead, that he was vindicated And that he is now ruling and reigning, bringing all things under his care. Bringing about his kingdom in our world. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that we are just a small part of that. And so we pray not only for us, but for everywhere where churches across this world will proclaim the good news that you are risen and that you are risen indeed. Would become for all of us, not just a historical remembrance of something in the past, but a powerful motivation to cause us to live with joy and integrity and righteousness now. We pray that you would do that by your grace. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Let's stand as we sing our